Hello everyone and welcome to this bonus episode of Recovery Talk. So essentially I get a lot of questions about coaching. What is it? Who is it for? Who do you work with? Who do you not work with? How is it different from therapy? You know, how long does it take? I get so many questions about it. So I thought I could answer some questions about it and explain a bit in a podcast episode especially as I am currently doing a intake of new clients. I was originally thinking of doing it in a live, doing an Instagram live where I talk about coaching, but I know that a lot of you uh, already listen to my podcast and I thought, hmm, might as well just put it in here. If you have absolutely no interest in coaching whatsoever, perhaps this episode isn't for you. you. I won't get offended if you skip this episode. But if you are interested in learning a bit more about coaching, working with me, and also just coaching in general, uh, then keep listening. So first thing first, I do currently have a waitlist for coaching. If you are on the waitlist for coaching, and if you have been for some time and not heard back from me, please check your junk email, because sometimes the email end up in junk mail. I don't know why, I don't know how to fix it, so I'm just letting you know. But also, if you recently joined the waitlist, it could be that I simply haven't gotten to you yet. And a lot of people ask me, how long does it take from when you join the waitlist till you get contacted about available spots for coaching? And the truth is, it really, really varies. Because very often I will tend to end working with a few people at the same time. So I will have a few places available at the same time. So I tend to take in people in groups, basically. Not working with people in groups. I work with people individually, but I tend to take in maybe two or three new clients within the same week because I might have stopped working with two or three clients recently. How long I work with the client also really varies. I'll talk more about time frame a little bit later into this episode. But before that, let me just explain a little bit more what coaching is. And first of all, I want to let you know that each coach has its own, I guess, definition of what coaching is. And I know I have spoken about this before, but there are a few people in the field who probably should not be in the field. If you have seen my story highlights on my Instagram account, Amalia Lee, about the real recovery scam, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, essentially someone took my hashtag and made a really, really dodgy coaching, coaching practice using the term I created. It's a mess. It's still ongoing. Uh, if any Germans know how to report or how to support because it's a German coach, please let me know because it's a headache and it's just absolutely sickening the way it's working. I think I will make another episode essentially just talking about how the field in itself has quite a few bad apples and that's something we just need to talk about. And the reason for that is that coaching is largely unregulated so there is not really like you know if you're a doctor and you do something dodgy you know you will have there will be a government regulation being able to evoke your license but coaching doesn't really require a license so there are a lot of people calling themselves coach who don't have much experience or training related to the field and I'll talk a bit more about my training and relevant experience a little bit later in the episode but yeah now let's get into it what is coaching 
So when people ask me about coaching, one of the first things they ask is, okay, what is coaching and how does that differ from just, you know, normal therapy? It's the same thing, just with a different name. And the truth is that coaching has similarities with therapy and at times it overlap, but there are a few fundamental differences, at least in the way that I work. A big difference between coaching and therapy, especially more, you know, psychotherapy, is that coaching works in the here and now. It is focused on what is going on in your life right now. What can we, what actions can we take right now? Uh, yes, it's very action oriented as well. So instead of just talking about the past, it is more, what can you do now? Of course, the past will come up at times. It's not like, oh no, we can't talk about the past because this is coaching, but it's more, it's not what we are intentionally digging into. So for instance, if you go to psychotherapy, very often it will intentionally go back in the past and find out what are like the underlying issues from the past that are the result of what you're struggling with right now. Whilst for coaching, it's more, okay, what can we do right now to make your situation better? And I found that some people quite enjoy that coaching approach. And I will very often have people who've gone to psychotherapy where they've just been endlessly digging in their childhood and they haven't really gotten anywhere. But I don't want to say that psychotherapy is not a good thing or that it can't be helpful in recovery because it really can be. Uh, but it's all about figuring out, figuring out what approach you think will work for you and at what time. And there also is a time where coaching is not a good idea, which I will talk about later. Another thing about coaching, which uh, makes it different from at least psychiatry, is that coaching don't operate with specific diagnosis or medication. This doesn't mean that we don't talk about, you know, diagnosis. For instance, if someone has a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa and enters coaching, it's not like we just <laughs> don't talk about that at all. Even though I tend to use more the term eating disorder rather than specifically anorexia or bulimia or binge eating disorder, I tend to just use eating disorder as like a wider term. And I tend not to focus on someone and whether or not someone is diagnosed. That is quite irrelevant for me if someone has an official diagnosis or not. And also I'm not opposed to medications, not at all, but I don't prescribe medications. And also I don't diagnose because I don't have the, you know, I don't have the um, qualifications to create a medical diagnosis for someone, nor do I have the uh, qualification to prescribe a medication that is illegal for me to do. But I'm not explicitly anti-medication or pro-medication or anti-diagnosis or pro-diagnosis, pro right? And very often I will work with a client who already have maybe a psychiatrist or maybe already have a doctor, someone that's prescribed them medication or given them a diagnosis, and then I work with that. And sometimes also people have had quite bad experiences with psychiatry and they prefer having an approach that treats them less like a patient and more like a person, because this is very important for me. I treat the person that I'm working with as an equal. I don't use the word patient. I tend to use the word client. And this is another very important thing about how I work. I give power to the client. I don't necessarily tell the client what to do. And this is a very, very, very important thing for me. And here I also think some coaches work differently than me. I know some coaches might be a bit more on the mentoring side where they're essentially telling people what to do and what not to do. I just don't do that. I work with the clients on setting goals together. The reason for this is I find time and time again that when a client has come to their own, I guess, conclusions and agreed on a goal rather than just being told what to do, 
it's way more powerful and it makes them feel like they have autonomy in their treatment. And very often you see people with eating disorders, especially if they've been in the psychiatric system, they have very often felt like they've lost that autonomy. But also sometimes people are so used to being told what to do that they will ask me what they should do. And they'll ask me, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> and it's not like I can never give some guidance or help with some challenges. Of course, I can do that. For instance, if someone is like, mm, oh, I, I kind of want to go for pizza tonight, but I'm not sure. Do you think I should do it? You know, I might say, hell yeah, go for it, right? Just in that way. Uh, but I try in general to avoid giving uh, specific instructions. Instead, I tend to ask questions to the person I'm working with, which makes them think and almost figure out their own answers. And of course, there's always going to be some extent of, you know, mentoring and guidance. There will be times where someone is panicky and they just need a pretty straightforward answer. For instance, like, oh my god, I'm having extreme hunger. Is it going to last forever? <laughs> then I might not say, do you think it will last forever? Then I might say, no, it's a temporary thing in recovery and it's completely normal, right? This is the thing I combine coaching, but also with psychoeducation. So yeah, this is also something that differs coaching from therapy a little bit. Depending, of course, on the type of therapy you're doing. If you're doing uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychoeducation is often an important part of it. But if you're doing more like psychodynamic therapy, psychotherapy, more in that branch, then psychoeducation is not always as big of a part of it. So what is psychoeducation? Psychoeducation is essentially teaching the client about their own condition and what's going on in their body and brain. Very simply explained. There is a balance there because of course I don't want my clients to end up hyper-focusing on their condition, right? Because that can be another way of letting the eating disorder take a role in recovery. Like, okay, we need to know exactly what's going on at exactly what time in order to beat this. That's not healthy either. But I do tend to help educate the client on what's going on in their body and brain. And this education is not education that I <laughs> just made up myself. I tend to base it on scientific journals. Sometimes, because I've been in the field for seven years, I will sometimes say, actually, I don't have an answer to this, but I've seen this in the majority of my clients, right? For instance, recovery fatigue. I still haven't found a very specific answer to it. I found a lot of theories and I made my own theories. But I can say, I've seen that in a lot of my clients or people that I've been talking to or supporting throughout the last few years. But usually the psychoeducation I provide will be scientifically based, right? Based on scientific papers. And here is the important thing. I'm not just necessarily sending my clients a bunch of scientific articles, even though sometimes I do share like, hey, look at this paper, especially if it's a client that's very unsure and needs a bit more reassurance. But what I instead tend to do is a little bit more like what I do in Let's Recover, which is essentially I take a scientific paper, I take scientific information and I break it down into more understandable pieces and metaphors. You all know how much I love metaphors. So I basically try and simplify it and make it a bit more understandable. And then if I have the occasional client who's equally as geeky as me and loves scientific studies, then I gladly share it, gladly, <laughs> or if someone requests it. Uh, but overall, I try to help the client understand their condition in a more easy to understand way. 
And unfortunately, what I am increasingly realizing is that this isn't that often done in eating disorder treatment. I don't know if it is because the treatment professionals don't always have the knowledge. I, you know, because if you think psychotherapists, they won't necessarily be trained in, you know, like evolutionary psychology or biological psychology. It just usually won't be part of their training. So they might not have the information. But also I do think that very often it's assumed by treatment professionals that patients don't necessarily want that information or care about that information. But I have just repeatedly found that to be so untrue. I find, could also be because of the clients I work with, but I find time and time again that clients are actually very interested in psychoeducation, in knowing what's going on in their body and brain. And this is something I realized myself when I was in recovery many, many years ago. I was very interested in knowing what's going on. And my therapist, I had a wonderful therapist, uh, but I wasn't really told what's going on in my body. I don't think it was because she didn't know it. I just thought she thought, why would I bother <laughs> telling my patient that? So I went and seeked out all of these uh, scientific papers and books and whatsoever on my own. That's how Let's Recover started. And for me personally, just because of who I am, for me, that was very, very helpful to my own recovery. Understanding what's going on, it was like a light bulb moment. Like things just clicked and then I was able to actually recover and trust the process. And this takes me to my next point in how, uh, you know, coaching differs from therapy and other forms of treatment. I have lived experience with an eating disorder. And yes, there are plenty of therapists, dietitians, doctors, etc. who have lived experience with eating disorders. But very often they're told not to use that in their treatment because it's unprofessional. But I have found time and time again that my, my lived experience... And talking about that and using that when relevant, of course, I don't make the sessions about me, right? But sometimes I will share, oh, I had that experience as well and it went fine with me. That can be so reassuring for clients. And personally, I think that self-disclosure when used appropriately and when used with a specific intention of helping the client can be incredibly helpful and also when used in a way that's not triggering to the client so it's like self-disclosure very valuable if used correctly but that is fine line to balance so i use self-disclosure in my own experience then relevant i also challenge a lot of the common beliefs about professionalism in therapy which was essentially invented by a bunch of old dudes like 100 years ago who was sitting there in their suits like thinking women were hysteric, right? <laughs> these, these were the men who, who made up that a therapist or coach or treatment practitioner for someone who's struggling should be this blank canvas. I don't necessarily believe that. I show up as myself in the session and I encourage the clients to do the same. This means that I don't show up in a suit talking super formally. I show up in comfortable clothing. I can make jokes with my clients. I talk like how you would talk to a human being. I don't talk like a robot. And I always tell my clients, like, do what makes you feel comfortable in session. If you want to be in your pajamas, if you want to be in your bed, if you want to sit on the floor, do it. You know, we. this is a relaxed atmosphere. We do the sessions how you feel comfortable. And that also takes me to a little bit of a practical point. I usually do my sessions online over Zoom. I do occasionally do in-person sessions if someone is nearby. And I do also do some sessions over phone call only. So with no video. 
and I do also offer text support, so no videos. But usually I will do the sessions over Zoom just because I find this to be the most convenient and it also means me meeting the clients where they are the most relaxed, which is usually in their own home. And also with the pandemic, it's just been the most practical thing. Maybe in the future, I would maybe consider, you know, doing more in-person sessions and maybe finding like a, having an office for doing in-person sessions. But for now, I find that my clients are very happy doing Zoom and it just, it's just very convenient for everyone involved. And it also enables me to keep the costs reasonable because if I were to pay a lot for offices, I mean, that would be reflected in higher prices because you would have to pay for the room. And about cost, I'm pretty transparent about my prices. They are on the Let's Recover website. The reason why I'm not saying my prices here is because they might have changed from making this podcast episode. So I'm saying that my prices should be at my website, letsrecover.co.uk. I try to keep my prices as reasonable as possible. I'm not really in the field to make a bunch of money. If I were, I would probably be in a different field. But I do, of course, need to charge for my services because I am a young woman living alone in London with a massive student debt. <laughs> I have spent more money training for my career than I have made money in my career. I have rent to pay. I have bills to pay just like everyone else. So I try and keep my fees as low as I can whilst also being able to, you know, take care of myself and pay what needs to be paid. I think when it comes to fees, it is such a tricky subject because there are some people in the field who I believe are charging unethically high amounts. But then again, I also think it's very important that the people in this field who are doing this job deserve to be paid for their labor. Just like you wouldn't expect the doctor who does your surgery to, to work for free. It doesn't mean that the doctor don't care about you, you know? And I often see a lot of people in the, what can I say, helping fields, right? So for instance, therapists who are struggling financially, but almost feeling that they need to be martyrs and sacrifice themselves. I personally do neither. I charge an amount that is very reasonable for my field and also an amount that means that I have housing security and can buy myself dinner, but also an amount that means that my clients won't be in financial ruin. Of course, depending on the client, because I do understand that not everyone can afford coaching. And honestly, I really wish that it was the government who were paying me and then people getting the coaching for free instead. I really wish it was that way. That's just not how it is. But I'm always looking into ways of making coaching more affordable for those who can't afford one-on-one -on -one coaching. For instance, I have been offering low-cost recovery course, and I really want in the future to focus more on group coaching and taking in more people, and there's therefore also keeping the fees lower for participants. Okay, let's get a bit back to talking about what coaching is. And I know this episode is getting a little bit long, but there is just so much to cover here. But just to add a few more things about coaching. So one thing that differs coaching from most traditional therapy is that I also offer out-of-session support. This means that between sessions, I have a WhatsApp work phone uh, where my clients can contact me if they have any questions or if they just need a bit of support. Some clients I don't hear from at all and other clients I talk to now and then throughout the week. I often find that for clients, just knowing that they can reach out is very helpful. 
many of my clients say, oh, just knowing that I can text you if I have a, if there is some panic or if I have a question is helping me, but I don't really end up doing it that often. But I always tell my clients, if you want to reach out, reach out. You're not bothering me. But also, if you generally just don't feel like reaching out, no pressure to do so. I won't be sad if I don't hear from you. But I always encourage my clients, if they have a burning question or if they have an acute moment of distress, it's better to reach out to me than to think, oh my God, I don't want to disturb Amalia. Because I mean, I'm your coach. I'm here for those moments. That's literally what you are paying me for. Yeah, because my sessions, they tend to be weekly. And then when I work with someone for some time and they become more independent, uh, we tend to move over to bi-weekly sessions, so every second week. And then gradually having less sessions until the person goes and flies away on their own. <laughs> and that also takes me to an important point. When I work with clients, I'm not looking to retain a client as long as possible. Some people come to me just for a little bit of a boost in their recovery. Some people I work with for a few weeks, others a few months. I rarely work with someone for a very long period of time. And this is simply because I don't really think it is ethically right of me to make clients completely dependent on me. So much of what we're working on together in session and getting the client independent. I also don't have any financial motivation of keeping a client for as long as possible, nor do I have a financial motivation for keeping the client as short as possible. Because I have a wait list, this means that when I don't work with someone anymore, and if they're done with coaching, I'll take on someone else. And I do understand that there are some therapists who, who struggle getting clients and therefore wants to keep the clients as long as possible because they need to pay their bills. Even though I still don't really think that's the ethical thing to do. I don't think that's right. Yeah, and that's the main reason why I'm not <laughs> keeping clients so reduced. Just because I don't think it's ethical. I don't think it's right. And I'm aware that even though when I enter a coaching uh, situation with a client, I see us as two equals. I am aware that for the client, they might see me as someone with authority. And that is a situation that can very easily be misused. Unfortunately, some people in the field do that. And that is very important for me not to do. I work with a client for as long as is good for them and good for me as long as is appropriate. For some people that's very short, for other people it's a little bit longer. But in general, I do see coaching as something with the start point and an end point. It's not like psychodynamic therapy where you go for three years, right? It is something that I see having a start and a finish. But I also make sure that that finish isn't so abrupt that the person feels abandoned because I'm aware that that can be a little bit scary as well. So I do tend to offer, okay, we can gradually cut down on sessions or maybe we could, you know, do a check-in like once a month for some time and that can really help soothe the patient as well. And I also tell clients that if you are a former client of mine and if, you know, everything goes wrong and you are having the worst relapse of your life, you know, I'm still here. You can reach out. I do have a wait list, but I do prioritize former clients on that wait list. So if you need acute help after having worked with me, you can reach out and I'll bump you up on the wait list. I can't guarantee that I'll be able to take you in the next day, but I will try and take you in as soon as possible. This is because I believe that in a relapse, it is all about catching it as soon as possible. And if I already know a client, I will tend to know what has worked for them and what hasn't. So we want to steer it in the right direction as soon as possible. So if you are a former client and you are experiencing a relapse, don't, don't hesitate to reach out. But thankfully, I haven't had that situation just yet. My former clients have been 
doing well as far as I'm aware, <laughs> or they have been secretly relapsing without telling me. But also if you're a former client and you might not have a relapse, but you just want a few check-in sessions or just a little boost after some time, that's fine. You can get in touch. So yes, even though I see coaching as something with a time frame, uh, that doesn't mean that I'm just like taking in and then throwing you out, you know? I don't want people to feel that way either. I also don't want people to feel like I'm trying to keep them for as long as possible to make as much money as possible, because that's just not how I work. So in addition to out-of-session support, there are a few other things that practically I do as a coach that therapists usually won't do. Uh, so for example, I may offer help and support with more practical things, such as maybe someone is going grocery shopping and they're feeling very overwhelmed. I might offer, yeah, we can FaceTime when you're grocery shopping. Or we might challenge a fear food together over Zoom. Or I might, you know, offer some help and support on where to buy comfortable pants in recovery, you know. A lot of these things that are a little bit outside of what a therapist would usually do, um, I will do as well. So more practical things. But yeah, the key difference, I guess, is that coaching is very focused on action. It's focused on the here and now. Focusing on setting specific goals. This is hugely important. After every session me and my client would have set specific goals for the coming week. And I also very often will give my client a little bit of homework, give them a little bit of an assignment. This is usually a written assignment. And if you've ever done CBT, you might be familiar with, you know, <laughs> homework from your therapist. Just some example, I might ask the person to write a pros and cons list about their eating disorder, right? Sounds silly, but it's actually very interesting when we actually go together and look at what has been written and then dig into it a bit and work on that together in the next session. So I have quite a few exercises that I give to my clients when I deem it appropriate. And also things such as, you know, creating a relapse prevention plan when I eventually stop working with someone. And also something I do usually towards the end of recovery, which is a very, very important step, I think is to talk with the clients about what recovery taught them and how they can look back at this time and feel like they actually learned something, learned some lessons that I can apply in their life. For instance, someone might have learned to let go of rigidity and they find that they can also apply that in their work situation and be less, less rigid at work. Or someone might feel like they've learned to trust, trust the process and now they feel like that means that they can trust people more. Just random examples, but that also is, um, is something that can be very, very powerful. And also another thing that I work on, which is very important, is to find identity outside of eating disorder and outside recovery. This is a key thing, which I also sometimes think is neglected a lot in especially psychiatry. I want to help the person find themselves and their identity outside of illness and also outside of recovery, because recovery can also become an identity. So I will very often with my clients, we will set certain plans and goals that are just so random and doesn't seem related to recovery at all. Like the things me and my clients have agreed on for them to do, like go to a meditation class or play guitar or reach out to that friend or, you know, it's just a lot of very random things that seem unrelated to recovery, but actually it's not unrelated to recovery. So this is another thing we work on, you know, identity and values outside of the eating disorder, outside of recovery, outside of sickness, diagnosis, etc, etc. But overall, my approach towards coaching is that no one size fits all. I have an individualized approach. In everything I do, 
I see the person. I don't have this as a specific recipe that I just apply blindly to each person. Yes, there are a few steps that are similar. For example, the way I work is that in early phases, the main focus would be towards refeeding and renourishing and getting out of the starvation uh, state because that cognitively makes it quite difficult to do coaching if someone is starved. So there are certain things there. It follows a certain pattern that I will tend to repeat to different clients, of course, depending on where they are, because some people will enter recovery and they won't be in, they won't be undernourished at all. They'll be completely fine, but they might look to, oh, I'm not undernourished, but I look to let go of my calorie counting and move over to intuitive eating. Just an example. But overall, the approach really does differ from person to person because there's no one size fits all. Everyone is different. And it's also very important for me to hear the client and hear what they would like, what they think will work for them and what hasn't worked for them in the past. Of course, there'll be times where I will challenge the client. Like if a client is like, yeah, counting calories for the rest of my life is just like what works for me. Of course, I'll challenge that. But I do really listen to the client and I'm aware that it's their recovery. So yeah, as mentioned, my approach is psychoeducation. Uh, you will also see that I use a lot of elements from cognitive behavioral therapy because this is also part of my training. And also coaching elements such as, you know, asking the right question, giving power to the client, specific goal setting, challenging, limiting beliefs. This is a huge one. And people don't often realize how, like what kind of beliefs they hold until they go into coaching and they're like, whoa, this belief is really holding me back. And then they realize and then we can work on challenging that. Essentially, I will say I use um, different elements from different directions and I've kind of merged it into one. So it's not strictly coaching or strictly CBT or strictly psychoeducation. It will be a mix of different things. And exactly what that mix is depends on the person. Some people need to work more on their limiting beliefs. That is the main thing we're doing. Whilst for others, psychoeducation is the most important thing for them. They really seek to want to understand what's going on. So overall, my whole point with coaching is to offer the person in recovery a safe space and also support. Just having someone who can support them knows what they're going through because it's the thing I use my live experience as mentioned. That can be incredibly supportive for some people. And some people specifically want someone who has that lived experience who actually does understand. And I think that is honestly probably the most important thing in the entire coaching is my relationship with the client. It's for them to trust me, for us to have a good relationship, a safe relationship where they know that they can talk with me and that they can talk about things that are uncomfortable, that they can show emotion with me. You know, the sessions is a place where you let your guard down. You let your, you take off the armor, right? It is okay to cry. It is okay to vent. You can share the things that you are embarrassed about, ashamed about, scared of. I am not judging you. That's the most important thing. There is no judgment. This is such a key thing for me. You can come and you can, you know, just be vulnerable. And it's a safe space. That's absolutely the number one and that can be very very powerful as well for a lot of people because especially with eating disorders you know a lot of the thoughts and behaviors it can be very taboo it can be very shameful and isolating and i believe that a problem shared is a problem halved so yeah bring it on whatever you have to say whatever dark secret you have i have probably heard it before
It takes a lot to gross me out. It takes a lot to scare me. Like, honestly, I can sit with my clients and we can discuss their bowel movements in great detail and I won't even flinch. It's just completely normal for me. So whatever it is, like, it is, there is nothing I haven't heard before. There, it, You probably won't be able to gross me out or make me uncomfortable. You could try. And if you succeed, I'll be very, very surprised. I'm a former healthcare worker. I have been changing diapers and wiping up every body fluid imaginable. It's fine. It's, yeah. And again, me, myself, I've had an eating disorder. I have literally been at the point where I have been eating trash, where I've been stealing food, right? I've been there. There is no shame. There is no shame. One of my favorite expressions, and this is a, a Norwegian expression, and I realized it doesn't make any sense unless I explain it a little bit more. Um, because the expression goes, shame is like a troll. It dies when exposed to daylight. I think it's a Norwegian expression at least because trolls is a very Norwegian thing. And essentially in Norway, we say that trolls, they, uh, they turn to stone and explode and die when the sun comes on them. <laughs> and I think of shame the same way, you know, shame can't really exist when it is exposed to daylight. Because that's a crucial part of shame is shame is something that is growing and gets heavy because you're keeping it in silence. Yeah, that was a little bit of a tangent there about shame. And yeah, but I just think that is so important. And I think for me as well, when I've done therapy, being able to go somewhere and just kind of share my darkest thoughts and my shame has really just helped me get rid of that shame. And I think shame is something that really can hold us back often without us realizing. Because the truth is eating disorders, they're not glamorous. They are, yeah, they are not glamorous. The mental and physical things going on, it's not always pretty. Okay, so let me just talk a bit about who I work with and who I don't work with. So I work with self-motivated people, usually self-referred people. So people who will seek me out intentionally and be willing to invest time and money into coaching. Important note here. When I say that, that does not mean that I think that if someone isn't self-motivated, they deserve to just stay in their eating disorder and don't have any medical help. I absolutely believe that everyone deserves access to help, whether they want it or not. But what I'm saying is that coaching, because of the very nature of how coaching work, that it is very much, you know, if someone is entering coaching and has no motivation to do so, then coaching is probably not going to be effective. But so much about coaching is about independence and that the person is actually committing to it and committing to the work throughout the week that we set in the sessions. And as a result, if you don't have that motivation yourself to put in the work, then, I mean... You, you probably won't get that much out of coaching. And I, as a practitioner, I want you to get something out of it. I'm not looking to waste your time. Yes, I could take your money and just sit there with you and see it going nowhere, but I have integrity as a practitioner and I'm not doing that. If you're not self-motivated, coaching probably isn't the best approach. But for God's sake, still seek out medical help. And hopefully, maybe you will eventually come to a point where you are self-motivated. And at that point, maybe coaching could be a good idea. So yeah, I don't work with people who have just been forced into coaching by someone else. And also very important, I don't work with people who are medically unstable. And this can be a little bit of a diffuse term. So I this is also part why I do um, 
pre-assessments. So I do a free consultation before starting working with someone just to see if we could be a fit. If someone is, for example, quite underweight and undernourished and are in medical risk, then I don't deem it responsible for me to work with them. Unless they have, you know, intensive medical supervision and they see coaching as an additional supplement and their treatment team has given them the green light. So it could be someone who's underweight, in recovery, they have close medical supervision, but they seek coaching so that they can have someone to talk to between sessions for support. Uh, so yeah, when it comes to not being medically stable when it comes to eating disorder doesn't necessarily just have to do with weight. Uh, it could be, for instance, if someone is very excessively binging and purging, they might be in risk of you know, severe electrolyte disturbances. I also wouldn't deem that responsible for me to work with people who are in that stage. And just overall people who are very, very deeply into the eating disorder and behaviors and aren't quite willing and ready to let go, I just don't think coaching is necessarily the best option. And even for people who are medically stable, if you have an eating disorder, I do say that you should also, you know, have a doctor or have some kind of medical support outside of coaching. Because coaching, it's not medical treatment for an eating disorder per se, it is a tool. I'm not sole medical responsible for the client because I am not their doctor. And that's why it's important for me to say that you do also need someone who can, you know, check your your bloods right or check your vitals right i can't do that i can't go and inject <laughs> check check your iron levels right or check your cardiac rhythm and also i'm not a dietitian i'm not a psychotherapist i'm not a psychiatrist i'm not a doctor i'm a coach coaching is a very specific tool in recovery i cannot give you a meal plan i cannot prescribe a medication to you i cannot give you a specific diagnosis but I very gladly work with the people in your team. And I do this often where I work with other practitioners who are, and we all have this sh a shared client and we work together in finding a good approach. So for instance, I might work with someone and also have their dietitian's email. And then we kind of just see each other in with some updates and agree on an approach together. And again, if you are already in treatment, I would like you to have permission from your treatment team to seek out coaching. If they are strongly opposed to it for whatsoever reason, then I don't really deem it appropriate for me to work with you just because I don't want to create conflict or for you to find that there are conflicting ideas and approaches. So always making sure we are at the same page. So yeah, typically I will work with someone who has already been in treatment, but they're looking to go the last mile, right? Because very often treatment for eating disorder tend to just kind of tell people, oh, you're fine now as soon as they reach a certain weight or have a certain behavior, right? But people might actually still be quite rigid. Or I work with someone who might be in the more acute phase of the eating disorder, but they already have medical treatment, but they look for coaching as an additional supply, an additional tool. I also work with people who struggle more with, you know, disordered eating, there could be rigid eating, binge restrict cycles, people who are chronically dieting, etc. and basically just seek out more food freedom. I also work with families and caregivers. So I will often have sessions with parents. Parents will often be the caregiver for a lot of people with eating disorders. And sometimes I even will have sessions with the parent and the client as well. And I'm very happy to, you know, work with caregivers and treatment professionals and if you are someone with an eating disorder who have a caregiver for instance you maybe you live at home and you're one of your parents or both of your parents are your predominant caregivers and they have a lot of um, 
responsibilities for your recovery they're very involved in your recovery with like practical task i would strongly encourage that i also would work with them as well of course due to confidentiality issues this must be agreed on with the client i can't just run to their parent and tell them everything that was going on in the session because you know confidentiality and this takes me to important points sessions are confidential i don't share what's going on in our sessions with other people you are anonymous only times i will share what was going on in a session is if you consent to it for instance imagine if you're someone who lives with your parent who is a caregiver and i'm going to have a session with the parents and you have consented beforehand for me to share information about what we talked about in sessions with your parents or you have given me consent to talking with your doctor i take that very seriously so no surprises there <laughs> and of course i would also need to breach confidentiality if someone is in acute danger of harming themselves or others this hasn't happened yet but if you were to say oh i'm gonna jump off a bridge tonight i would have had to contact someone and also in terms of who I don't work with and who I do work with in terms of, you know, I mentioned already medically stable. I also want to say that medically stable doesn't necessarily only mean to things related to the eating disorder. If someone is having a physical or mental health condition, which makes them very vulnerable, then I will maybe also not work with them depending on the condition. So imagine if someone, for instance, have a very severe mental health disorder that is outside of my scope of training and that I deem that they could be in danger to themselves and others, I might not work with them. Or if they have a comorbid physical health issue that is so complex that I don't really deem it responsible for me to work with them either, then, you know, I might not. Of course, I do work with a lot of people who have comorbid conditions, but it just depends on the extent and also how much it in impacts recovery, whether or not I can work with them. So, of course, it's not like if you have, let's say, an anxiety disorder or you have a uh, heart condition that means that I absolutely cannot work with you of course I can but it means that we would need to just take that into consideration and I would need to just check how it would impact your recovery right I also don't work with children this is because working with children requires a different approach and I'm trained predominantly in working with adults Will I consider going away from this in exceptional circumstances? Yes. I have worked with clients that were like 16, 17, where I've worked with the client and their parents. So if I'm working with someone under the age of 18, I will have to work with the parent as well, and I will need full parental consent. Basically, I will either have the parents present in the sessions or, and usually I will do that for at least a few sessions. And then if I move over to have uh, sessions with the client alone then i will email the parent afterwards with an overview of what we spoke about and what we agreed on i know this might seem strict and some might be think oh yeah but what about confidentiality but this is the thing that we agree on this beforehand the client already knows that that is if you're going to work with me and if you're a minor i would need to talk with your parents as well and i will only work with people who are under the age of 18 if they are also you know independent and self-motivated and have been seeking me out themselves. I normally work with adults, but yeah, there have been exceptions where I've been working with people who are just under 18 and their parents, and I've had very good, good experiences doing so. It has been a very successful collaborations, but overall I am 
more strict when it comes to working with people who are under the age of 18 just because of the approach and the different responsibilities working with a minor entails. So essentially, I don't work with minors. I work with families then, right? Then I will, essentially, I will be working with the parents and the child. Whilst if I'm working with someone who's an adult, I won't necessarily work with the parents unless the parent is also consented to be part of the treatment and are maybe a caregiver. It really depends from person to person. But when I'm working with someone under the age of 18, it will never be alone. It will be with parental supervision and consent and involvement. Only in very special cases after close <laughs> investigation and talk with the parents as well. I know, I know, I know that sounds very strict, but it is just, I'd rather be a bit too strict than too slack. And overall, I don't work with people where I just sense that it won't be beneficial for them to do coaching. It could be where there's someone where I just sense that we don't, I just don't feel like we will be a compatible team. Or I sense that they would probably benefit from a different kind of approach than what coaching can offer. And if so, I tend to just nudge them in that direction and say, hey, from what you're describing, it seems that you, for instance, you have a lot of trauma and you would probably benefit more from doing trauma work. And then maybe in the future, you might come to a point where coaching could be good for you. Or maybe someone is very medically unstable and I say, hey, I think you would probably benefit more from maybe an inpatient stay or a more intensive medical supervision right now. And I don't deem it responsible for me to work with you right now, maybe in the future. Okay. Last but not least, my training and qualification and work experience and education and all of that. So first and foremost, I have seven years of experience running Let's Recover and just doing community work. I have been in the recovery community for so many years where I've been, you know, providing psychoeducation, working with people officially and unofficially. I used to work basically more peer support mentoring unofficially unpaid for people for quite some time. Been running courses, support groups, platforms, written articles, etc. sector for seven years. I kind of deem that my most important qualification is all the community work I've been doing over the years, all the people that I've been working with and talking to. That is something that for me is just at the core of what I'm doing is that I want to be, you know, on the ground talking to the people who are actually going through it rather than just, you know, reading about it in some book. But I do, of course, also have <laughs> other training and qualifications than that. So I'm currently doing a master's degree in psychology and here for my master's thesis, I'm actually specializing in eating disorders and so I'm going to do scientific research on eating disorders. I'm also trained in coaching from the Norwegian Business School BI. This was like a half a year course-ish and I was trained by a psychologist and coach. Here I did my final assignment slash dissertation slash whatever it's called in English about eating disorders and coaching as a tool in eating disorder recovery. I actually was graded an A. Not, oh, I feel silly saying that, but I just want to kind of clarify that I have been, you know, I have been doing academic work that's been <laughs> approved, you know. And also, I am a former healthcare worker, as I mentioned previously. So I've been working in healthcare as a nursing assistant. So I have some basic healthcare training. I have also been doing quite a bit of volunteer work. For instance, I was volunteering in Red Cross with the refugee integration. So basically helping newly arrived refugees with integrating and like practical support to refugees. And for this, I did courses uh, around multicultural communication, right? So I have certifications, courses where I've certified in 
diversity and dialogue and also multicultural work. So overall, I'm trained in talking with people from different cultures across language barriers. And there's also an important thing. You do not need to be fluent in English to work with me. I'm trained working in people across language barriers. And also I myself am not a native speaker in English. You do not have to be fluent. I will understand you. If you can understand this podcast or at least most of it, you're fine. I also have training in philosophy and critical thinking from university level. And I also have half a year of counseling psychology from university level. I also hold certification in CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And yeah, the coaching training I mentioned was also on university level for half a year. It was, yeah, as I mentioned, just saying that was like university approved um, coaching, which differs because coaching is usually not university approved. But in my case, it actually was. It was quite, yeah, you needed to pass it by doing a final assignment. So it's quite a serious thing. <laughs> I swear so many coaches just train, they do like a one week course and they're like, I'm a coach. And I'm just like, oh my God, that was not how I did it. But I think what is so important for me to say is that despite the fact that I do have quite a lot of, you know, training and qualifications, both from here and there, I want to say that I am always learning. This is just the core of my whole you know identity I guess and work ethic I am always learning I am not like okay now I am fully trained I'm fully done I am always focusing on how to learn new things also outside of my studies so I'm always reading new books reading new articles right now I'm actually reading a book about trauma and how trauma impacts the brain and I'm just always reading new things because that also helps me become a better practitioner for instance the book I'm reading now I know will be helpful for me when I work with clients who have experienced trauma so yeah this is important also because psychology is a field that's always evolving and changing and I always want to stay in the loop what is the latest research what are the latest approaches so I'm always learning I am never done learning. And another question, it's getting long, so I'll try and be a bit quick. This is something I touched upon already, and that is how long does coaching take? And the answer to that is it depends. Some people want to just have a quick coaching approach, just a few sessions just for a boost. Plus other I work with work with on a more ongoing basis. It also really depends on what the client wants. If I, for instance, have a client that has a bit of a time pressure and they have a, of course, if the goal is realistic, they're like, I want to really do high intensity coaching over the next three months because I really want to be free uh, for summer so I can go travel. Of course, I'll be open and say that, you know, recovery is not like taking a car into a garage where you just that's how long and then it will come out and be perfectly fine. That's not really how recovery works. But I do tend to work with clients on their timeframes as much as I can if the timeframes are realistic. But if someone is coming and saying they want high intensity coaching, that will of course mean more work on their hand. It will mean more challenges, more intensity. And this is just so important. I am not the one doing the work, right? It's the clients that are doing the work of their own recovery. I'm giving them the tools they have to do the digging. So how much are you willing to dig? And even if you are willing to dig and dig and dig, it still won't happen overnight. So I work with timeframes as much as I can, as long as they're realistic, but I don't work with exact timeframes. I don't make promises like, if you work with me for two months, you will never have an eating disorder thought in your life again, because you can't do that. There are no guarantees. 
But I will tell you that most people who have worked with me for a few months, they tend to report feeling a lot better. That's not an outrageous claim that I can have backed up by former clients. But I cannot make any promises on you will feel this much better in this specific time frame because it really just depends. But overall, when I work with a client, my goal is always to think, how can we help you? How can I help you as much as possible, as effectively as possible? And sometimes this will happen in surprising ways. Sometimes I will ask clients questions or give them tasks that seem so random, but they will realize afterwards why I did it. And very often me and my clients will agree on a task that they're going to do, a challenge that they're going to do, that they actually really don't feel like doing, but we agreed on it. And me keeping them accountable helps them do it. And then they do it and they feel so grateful they did it. Great example is challenging a fear food. So if you go to coaching with me, we are not spending three sessions just talking about your fear food. We are actually going to make it a goal to challenge it. Of course, we don't necessarily go from zero to 100 right away unless someone is ready to do that approach. If so, let's go for it. But we'll be working on setting specific goal and actually challenging your fears step by step. And I always tell my clients that your eating disorder is not going to like me, but that's fine as long as you like me. <laughs> and it is amazing to see a client. This is one of the most rewarding things when I work with a client is when I start working with them and they are, for instance, terrified of a specific food or very rigid. And then a few months pass and they're eating that food with ease. And I remind them like, hey, do you remember where you came from? And they're like, oh my God, I had almost forgotten because it's become so normal to them to challenge these fears that it's no longer scary. But yeah, overall, a lot of people report to me that one of the most important things for them with coaching is to have someone to keep them accountable. So for instance... They might want to challenge fear foods, but they find it difficult if they don't have some kind of system or approach or person to keep them accountable to actually do it. So I'm kind of someone's accountability buddy in recovery in a way. And also just help them with the, the practical, the structure of it. Like, hey, how are we going to do this? Does everyone need coaching to do that? Of course not. Some people might just be completely on their own going all in and not really feel like they want or need or can access types of support, right? Everyone is different. But for some people, it is a very crucial part of their journey and can be quite helpful. So if you think coaching with me works for you, then feel free to join my waitlist at letsrecover.co.uk slash coaching. There I have also answered a few frequently asked questions, which are probably also covered in this increasingly long episode. But also if you do have any questions that you feel I haven't covered here on my website, feel free to send me an email. I'll happily answer if you've got any questions about coaching. I just also want to say this is my approach. This doesn't mean that everyone else works like me, even people that I work with in the field. I have coaching colleagues who follow similar approaches to me, but even within us, we have different approaches. I was actually just talking about, about this with two other coaches today that I see as my colleagues, and we figure out oh, we have a slightly different approach on that one thing, and that's fine. There's not necessarily any right or wrong. Everyone has a different approach and you need to think what you think would work for you. And also, what kind of person do you feel safe around? What kind of person do you feel comfortable around? The therapeutic relationship is so crucial. So if you don't feel safe and comfortable around a coach, even if that's a great coach, it might not be the right one for you. So for instance, if you feel very uncomfortable with me as a person for some reason, then it's okay. Maybe I'm not the match for you. That's fine. 
So yeah, overall in short, the goal I have with my clients is for them to reach full recovery and freedom. Not settling for halfway there, but going full all in and also finding pleasure, identity and joy outside of their eating disorder and recovery. And also making a plan to prevent relapse in the future and spotting the red flags early because this is such an important thing because eating disorders have a high relapse rate. We are very we put a lot of work into preventing that from happening and knowing what to do if it does if things do go backwards. Kind of having that safety net because I'm not necessarily just looking to get people recovered. I'm looking for people to stay recovered. I don't want someone to work with me and then be fine when they're working with me. And then as soon as they go on on their own, they are just like completely relapsing. That's not how I work. I look for people to have recovery being a forever thing. And that if they have relapses or slip ups, we have a plan for that and we have an approach for that. So that's my mission, creating robust recoveries. And if you're looking to work with me, I can't guarantee you it will be easy. You will have to put in work. You will be frustrated at times. You're probably also going to have times where you feel like ghosting me. But it will be worth it. I have not spoken to someone who recovered and been like, oh my god, I really regret recovery. Okay, guys, that was it for today. Uh, Overall, I hope this has helped clear it up a little bit about what coaching is how I work, given some information if you are interested in working with me. So yeah, maybe now you think that coaching sounds awesome and might be something for you, or maybe you think, yeah, interesting, but I don't think that's for me. Either is fine. And I will see you in next scheduled episode. Have a lovely day, guys.